Part 3, Chapter 6 of Canada's Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part 3, Chapter 6 Operations. September 27, continued. No better account of the operations on September 27 of the 1st Canadian Division is available than its divisional narrative, already quoted so extensively. While the difficulties of an exposed flank did not present themselves to the same extent as were faced by the 4th Division, this division was given a task so intricate in execution that the carrying of it out to the letter must ever be a justifiable source of pride for members of the famous Old Red Patch. The boundary, says this narrative, between the 4th and 1st Divisions for the first phase ran due east of Inchy, just north of Quarry Wood. Then, swinging slightly to the left, it ran from 1,000 to 1,500 yards of Burlong. The 1st Division left boundary was the Canal du Nord. The 1st Canadian Division then had to cross the Canal du Nord, seize the high ground to the north of Burlon Wood, and mop up the valley of the canal as far north as the village of Sauchy Lestray. Then, in the second phase of the battle, it was to capture Hainecourt and the high ground north and east of that village. The 1st Division, therefore, in the first phase of the battle, had to attack from a front of 1,100 yards, gradually extend this front until it became 6,000 yards when the final objective was reached, and advance over 6,000 yards. The divisional commander decided to make the initial attack with the 1st Brigade on the right and the 3rd Brigade on the left. When the general line, Burlon-Marquion, was reached, the 2nd Brigade would enter the fight between the 1st and 3rd Brigades and would carry the battle right through the 2nd phase to the capture of Hainecourt and the high ground north and east of that place. This meant that each brigade had before it a distinctly different task. On the right, the 1st Brigade had before it a series of frontal assaults. First, it must cross the canal then capture the Canal du Nord Trench, advance 2,000 yards, and take the Marquion Line, then advance 1,500 yards to the railway cutting and embankment that formed a natural trench line, and then across open country to the final objective, a total advance of 6,000 yards, ending with a frontage of 1,500 yards. The 3rd Brigade attack on the left resolved itself into a series of outflanking and turning movements. After the first rush across the canal on a 300-yard front, the brigade would break the Canal du Nord trench line and then swing north and even west in the attack on Saint-le-Marquion, thus presenting the unique spectacle of our troops attacking directly toward our own lines. As a matter of fact, the artillery barrage here first of all traveled forward in the usual way and then began to drop back towards the guns, 
the result being that our own barrage was between our infantry and the guns. After the capture of saints le marquion the brigade continued its rolling-up tactics by taking the Marquion line in enfilade and attacking both Keith Wood and the village of Marquion from the east. In other words, taking the garrisons of these places in the flank and rear. After crossing the Arras-Cambrai road, the brigade continued its flank attack on the Canal du Nord and Marquion lines as far as the final objective for the first phase, a total advance of 6,000 yards and an extension of front from 300 to 2,500 yards. The 2nd Brigade had a still different task. Its units had a four-mile march from the assembly position before they entered the fight. Once in the battle, it had practically open country before it, and attacked frontally, being required to make an advance of roughly 3,500 yards on a front of 1,800 yards. The division, as a whole, staged forward on September 19 and on September 24 and 25 completed the march to the assembly areas. On the night of September 25, the 1st and 3rd Brigades relieved units of the 2nd Division in the line, taking over their respective battle fronts. Divisional headquarters moved on September 26 to battle headquarters in dugouts in a railway cutting 2,500 yards west of Inchi. September 27 was the day set for the attack. The ten previous days had been spent by all units in a careful study of the country, in planning their work and in outfitting for the battle. The artillery were engaged in selecting battery positions and in getting ammunition forward, while the engineers had to plan their share of the bridging of the canal. On the night of September 26, all units moved forward to their assembly positions. The night was exceedingly dark, and a steady rain fell until nearly dawn, which not only added to the difficulties and discomforts, but made the going very slippery all the morning. Owing to the extremely narrow front from which the division had to jump off, attacking infantry and machine gunners, supporting artillery, and bridging details of engineers, all had to be crowded into a small area. A heavy enemy concentration on this front would have jeopardized the success of the attack, but the enemy appeared to suspect nothing, and the night was normal. The 1st Brigade was assembled in depth on a front of about 700 yards. The leading battalion, the 4th Central Ontario, was in the northeastern end of Inchy in Artois. The 1st Battalion, Western Ontario, was in the lower end of the Buissy Switch, some 800 yards in rear of the 4th. The 2nd Battalion, Ottawa, was behind the 1st and the 3rd, recruited from Toronto District, behind the 2nd. The 3rd Brigade had to attack through a 300-yard defile and so assemble on a 1-battalion front. The 14th Battalion, Royal Montreal Regiment, assembled in Paviland Wood with the 13th Montreal Highlanders, 1,000 yards in rear in the Buissy Switch. The 15th Battalion, 48th Highlanders of Toronto, was north of the 13th and the 16th Canadian Scottish of Western Canada was holding the front line north of the assembly area of the 14th. The 2nd Brigade, 
as it did not come into action until four hours after the opening of the attack, was assembled just east of Cagnicourt, some 3,000 yards in rear of the 3rd Brigade. At 20 minutes after 5 on the morning of Friday, September 27, the attack opened under cover of an intense shrapnel and smoke barrage. Some idea of the concentration of artillery may be gained from the fact that there was an 18-pounder gun to every 21 yards of barrage on the front of the 1st Division, and that there were 10 brigades of field artillery alone whose 240 guns fired 118,062 rounds on this first day of the battle. Supporting this division, in addition to this, there were 160 machine guns firing in the barrage, while special companies of engineers were projecting smoke and boiling oil into the village of Marquion and on the high ground further to the north. The site, when the first gleams of daylight revealed the battle, was weird in the extreme. The horizon, as far as the eye could see, was nothing but masses and long lines of leaping, billowing smoke. Dense white smoke shot through at intervals with the flicker of bursting shrapnel or the black smudge of high explosive. Battle, as far as it concerned the 1st Division, can be visualized best by following the fortunes of the individual brigades. The 1st Canadian Infantry Brigade launched its attack with the 4th Battalion. The 4th Battalion advanced 2,000 yards and captured the Canal du Nord and Marquion trench systems on its front. The 1st Battalion then passed through it, taking up the fighting and carrying the line forward a distance of 1,500 yards. Just as this battalion completed its allotted task, its right flank came under heavy machine gun fire from the railway 1,000 yards north of Burlon village. At this time, the 2nd and 3rd battalions, which had been following closely, passed through the 1st battalion. They were held up almost at once by the enemy in the railway cutting and embankment, but by hard fighting managed to clear this obstacle without assistance other than that offered by batteries of the machine-gun battalion that came into action at this time. Although the 4th Division on the right was held up more or less definitely on a line just east of Burlon, the 2nd and 3rd battalions pushed on to the objective set for the conclusion of the first phase, and even succeeded in working patrols forward to within 1,000 yards of the villages of Raylancourt and Hainacourt. The 1st Brigade was assisted in its attack by four tanks that did valuable service in the early stages of the attack and had attached to it three batteries of No. 1 Company of the 1st Battalion Canadian Machine Gun Corps. While the infantry tanks and machine guns were advancing along the whole front and while the canal was even under machine gun fire, the engineers were rushing the work of bridge building. With such speed was this done that at eight o'clock that morning batteries of the divisional artillery began to cross in support of the infantry. By 10.30 o'clock all batteries of both brigades were east of the canal. From zero hour on, the 1st Brigade, CFA, was attached to the 1st Infantry Brigade and advanced with it throughout the day. In the meantime, the attack of the 3rd Brigade was meeting with stiff opposition on the left. 
the third brigade had only a narrow gap of three hundred yards on its front in which the canal du nord could be crossed the opening attack of this brigade was made by the fourteenth battalion this battalion cleared the canal on its front and while one company advanced with the first brigade the remainder swung to the left and cleared the canal du nord line by attacking it in enfilade and finally following the local backward barrage already referred to attacked the village of sans le marquion from the east capturing it soon after nine o'clock the thirteenth battalion here took up the battle following the same general plan put into operation by the fourteenth battalion the leading company carried on with the general attack to the east while the following companies turning to the north attacked keith wood and the marquion line the resistance was severe the fighting very heavy and progress was slow in fact the seventh battalion british columbia of the second brigade and the fifteenth battalion as well as a battalion of the eleventh division which were following in order to carry on the advance became involved in the fighting here although the marquion line east of the village of that name was captured the village itself was still in the hands of the enemy as a result the fifteenth battalion and units of the eleventh division as well as the engineers engaged in bridge construction came under heavy machine-gun fire in crossing the canal north of seines le marquion eventually however all the area in the canal valley up to marquion was cleared by the fifteenth battalion a combined attack by the thirteenth and fifteenth battalions then resulted in the capture of marquion itself the fifteenth then pushed on rapidly and by two o'clock in the afternoon had reached the final objective of the first phase four tanks assisted the fourteenth battalion in the initial attack but were unable to proceed beyond the canal du nord line three batteries of the machine-gun battalion were attached to the third brigade for this operation while this fighting was going on units of the second brigade were marching forward ready to intervene in the battle at the appointed hour the seventh battalion the first to enter the fight had to leapfrog the thirteenth battalion after that unit had captured the marquion line the seventh found the thirteenth hotly engaged and assisted it in breaking the marquion line by this time the artillery barrage had left the infantry far behind a local barrage was arranged and supplied by the second brigade cfa and under cover of this the seventh battalion was able to move forward the enemy's resistance rapidly weakening as our troops advanced the chief resistance beyond the arras cambrai road was met with from machine guns just north of bois de croquet patrols were pushed forward and reached a line over two thousand yards north of the arras cambrai road during the afternoon a small counter-attack by the enemy on the center was repulsed the eighth battalion winnipeg had followed the seventh in support but were not called on for help this ended the first phase of the battle by two o'clock in the afternoon we had burlon wood and our line then ran north and east from burlon village to within five hundred yards of Railencourt, then north practically to haynecourt and then swung back westward meeting the canal du nord just north of sauchy lestre 
The second phase calls for an advance by four divisions in line, the 3rd, 4th and 1st Canadian and the 11th British Division from right to left being ordered to continue the attack. The 3rd Division on the right and the 11th on the left had followed the attacking divisions closely and were ready to carry on the fight. The intervention of a new division on each flank meant that the 4th and 1st Division would have to close on the center. It was found late in the afternoon that the 4th Division could not continue the advance that day. The 1st and 11th Divisions, however, attacked about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, according to program. The continuation of the attack on the 1st Division front was carried out by the 2nd Brigade. The 5th Saskatchewan and 10th Alberta Battalions had assembled ready to advance and at 3.20 o'clock the 5th Battalion swept over the outpost line and advanced very rapidly, meeting little resistance. Haina Corps was soon captured. The 10th Battalion here continued the advance, but soon began to meet opposition. Owing to the fact that the troops on the right were not advancing, the 5th and 10th Battalions had a heavy enfilade fire poured into their flank. The enemy here were in great numbers, apparently, and soon had field guns as well as machine guns firing on our troops. In spite of this, the 10th Battalion pressed forward until held up by a heavy and continuous belt of wire just west of the Douai-Cambrai Road. Patrols, although under heavy machine gun fire, cut gaps through this wire by hand and then, in a sudden rush, overpowered the gun crews and crossed the Douai-Cambrai Road. East of the road, however, five belts of wire were encountered, and as the enemy fire was steadily increasing, the advance was halted. The 11th British Division had advanced on the left and had captured Epinoy, but on the right the situation was far from secure. Here the brigade found itself with an exposed right flank of 4,000 yards. The responsibility of guarding this flank developed upon the 5th and 8th Battalions the 7th being in reserve. On the front of the 5th Battalion, the enemy made three unsuccessful attacks at nightfall. The 1st and 2nd Brigades of Field Artillery supported the 2nd Brigade throughout the afternoon's operations and supplied protective fire throughout the night. This concluded the actual fighting on the first day of the battle, but during all this day the engineers had been busy bridging the canal. This task was entrusted to the 3rd Battalion Canadian Engineers. Five traffic crossings had to be constructed and four footbridges. The first traffic crossing was completed at 8.40 o'clock that morning. All bridges, with one exception, were completed by 6 o'clock in the evening. The early stages of the work were carried out under machine gun fire, many casualties being suffered. After the 1st Canadian Division had secured the east line of the Canal du Nord as far north as sauchy lestray the 11th British Division was given the task of going through them at this point and exploiting the success along their left or northern flank, compromising the veteran 32nd, 33rd and 34th Brigades, it did its job in a thorough business-like way, capturing 1st sauchy lestray then on its left the high ground of voici le Verger, and on the right pushing on into Epinoy. 
Their left flank, some little distance east of the canal, was protected by a barrage, and after crossing over the canal, the 56th Division of the 22nd Corps on our right pushed up between the canal and the barrage, preceded by a rolling barrage and mopping up the defenses. The fighting in this important corner, which united at once the north and the south of the Sensee and the east and the west of the Canal du Nord, was very severe. The Bois de Quesnoy was full of machine-gun nests and concrete pillboxes. The enemy had a good field of fire, and the marshes, organized for defense, assisted him. But the 56th Division was not to be denied and reached its objectives. On our right, the 3rd Army had crossed the canal and captured part of the Hindenburg Line. For the reasons set forth above, opportunity had been denied the 3rd Canadian Division to go through the 4th Canadian Division and storm the Marquois Line but the division was brought close up in support on the east side of the canal and suffered many casualties. It was now to move up during the night to be prepared to jump off at dawn. Failure to carry the Marquand line on the opening day gave the enemy time to bring up reserves from Douai and elsewhere. Aware now of our strategic plan to cut in north of Cambrai, he massed his divisions in front of us, and for the next four days contested the field with great determination, and even at times wrested from us ground we had won, but had been unable to consolidate. Had the battle gone as planned without impediment, he would have been obliged to fall back at once over the Scheldt Canal northeast of Cambrai, abandoning the city, and thus avoiding for the Canadian Corps the terrific struggle that was now to ensue. Many noteworthy feats of arms by all ranks were performed this day, both in the actual crossing of the Canal du Nord and the advance on Burlon Wood. Of these, the following examples are selected from numerous cases as being characteristic of the conditions encountered and the spirit by which they were overcome. Brigadier General G. S. Tuxford, in command of the 3rd Canadian Infantry Brigade, found that his task was to cross the Canal du Nord on a front of but 450 yards and then fan out on a brigade frontage facing due north as well as east, totaling 5,500 yards. While very gallant officers commanded the three battalions engaged in the attack, these were all seconds in command and had not previously commanded their respective battalions in an attack. This greatly increased the responsibilities of the brigadier, who kept in the closest touch throughout. Crossing the canal shortly after the attack was launched, under heavy shell and machine-gun fire, while the enemy still held part of the eastern bank, with an utter disregard to personal danger, he remained in the vicinity of the three battalions, directing their operations, and dealing with difficult situations as they arose. Much of the success of the work of this brigade resulted from its commander's conspicuous gallantry, splendid initiative, and fine leadership. In the attack on Burlon Wood by the 50th Battalion of Calgary, Private R. Bloor, finding that heavy rifle fire was coming from Quarry Wood, alone and of his own initiative attacked the position, driving the enemy into his dugouts and holding him there until help came when 146 officers and men 
including an entire battalion headquarters staff, surrendered. He died later of his wounds. Captain George Fraser Kerr of the 3rd Battalion, recruited from Toronto District, while leading the left support company in the attack on Burlon Wood, gave timely support by outflanking a machine-gun nest holding up the advance on the railway embankment. When he rushed up two platoons, outflanking the enemy and capturing the garrison. When almost on the Arras-Cambrai road, the advance was again held up by a machine-gun post, which he rushed single-handed, capturing four machine-guns and thirty-one prisoners, his men then being one hundred yards behind him. This brilliant exploit prevented the enemy withdrawing a number of guns, which fell into our hands. During the attack of the 8th Battalion, when a line of hostile machine guns opened fire suddenly on his platoon, which was in an exposed position and no cover available, Corporal Alexander Brereton of Winnipeg at once appreciated the critical situation and realized that unless something was done at once, the platoon would be annihilated. On his own initiative, without a moment's delay and alone, he sprang forward and reached one of the hostile machine gun posts where he shot the man operating the machine gun and bayoneted the next one who attempted to operate it, whereupon nine others surrendered to him. Inspired by this heroic example, his platoon charged and captured the five remaining posts. End of Part 3, Chapter 6 Recording by James O'Connor Randolph, Massachusetts, May 2010